We can engage people with content that meets them where they're at. And then once they're engaging with that content and you've struck up some sort of a relationship, even if a distant and digital relationship, then you can introduce stuff about you. And that's honestly is my favorite stuff. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. Our guest today is Justin Boatman, who is the Chief Product Officer at Riskalyze. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Glad to talk to you. Fun to uh, chat here on April Fool's Day. We can get into a minute, but I understand you guys are having a little fun today with your app. But let's start at the beginning here real quick. Tell us about yourself and, of course, tell us about Riskalyze. Well, Nick, you said it. I'm Chief Product Officer here. I actually have not been Chief Product Officer here for very long. I am going into seven years here at Riskalyze, but started on the marketing side of things. I was having conversations with the founders of Riskalyze years and years ago. And before I was here, sort of at a crossroads, hey, do you want to help us build a products team? Do you want to help us build a marketing team? And there was sort of a like early almost founder product leader that was in place, but wanted me as sort of a, a product lieutenant. And boy, was really on the fence about that. And we all made the call together that I go start a marketing team. And I think that was the right call. And it's been a blast to build a marketing team from scratch and watch you know, our SaaS company grow. And in its first chapter, that was just absolutely incredible. And what the company needs right now is somebody at the chief product officer seat. And so I've only been doing this for about a month or so. I've shifted over onto this side of things. But that's been my crystallized journey so far and where I'm at right now. Gotcha. So is the company then seven years old or was it before you came along? Before I came along. Company is 10. It's going on 11. We just hit 11 years now. And so a product went to market for the first time in 2013. And we sell that product to financial advisors. And boy, the hockey stick started just about immediately when product met market. So that's been, been fun since then. Tell us a little bit more about the product then. I mean, obviously, the name's a bit of a mass matchup of uh, risk and analyze. So what does that do for uh, investors? Yeah, it is a bit what it sounds like. We invented the risk number, which is a number scale of 1 to 99 and can assess the risk tolerance of an investor. So for an advisor working with their clients, the advisor would be out there believing that everybody has a risk number, whether they know it or not. And then the advisor can construct a portfolio and that portfolio is going to have a risk number to match. And so, you know, our, our mission is to empower the world to invest fearlessly. We think that, you know, when an investor understands the risk in their portfolio, knows how to react to it, and knows that it's been built to them as an individual, then they're going to be fearless about their finances and not, you know, calling their advisor angry if things are a little volatile because they understand what is quote unquote normal in their portfolio because they know their risk number. So is this usually the start of a relationship between an investor and an advisor? Is it a questionnaire? What does it take them through to assess their score? I'll back up a little bit and just say advisors are pretty keen that investing feels broken to the average investor. And so the short term just gets ignored in a lot of traditional wealth management contexts because you're trying to get the investor to focus on the long term. This manifests itself, by the way, with current customers and with prospects where it uses a prospecting tool. And I can you know, explain that a little bit in a moment. But man, when the short term gets ignored, you know, these investors don't know how to react to risk in the short term. There's two words that 
a traditional advisor would never say, and it's risk and the short term. It's not religion and politics, right? And so this new wave of advisors really coming onto what we call the fearless investing movement are those who understand that while human beings should be focused on the long term, they're emotionally incapable of it, and they react to risk in the short term. And so we can actually Every risk number in a portfolio is paired with a 95% historical range that tells you mathematically what normal volatility may look like with a 95% confidence interval. That way, the client knows what they're signing up for. And so, yeah, that starts often with a questionnaire where if an advisor wants to build a portfolio around the risk tolerance. There's a, a few different ways you can think about setting a risk target for something. But if an advisor wants to build a portfolio on, around a client's risk tolerance, which is the most common sort of workflow, it starts with a questionnaire. Questionnaire is built on an academic framework that won the Nobel Prize in economics. Years ago, a guy named Daniel Kahneman published Prospect Theory, which basically means, hey, losses tend to hurt worse than gains feel good in, in human psychology. And so we base a questionnaire on real dollar amounts and say, hey, this is how much you actually have to invest. And it just takes the client or prospect through a few minute process to basically ask them, hey, when would you take a gamble over a certain guarantee or vice versa? And you go through this process and it's pretty rigorous. And at the other end of it, you know, you find out your personal risk number. They think everyone has one, whether they know it or not. I'm a risk number 89, by the way. And so once the advisor has that captured, this is a prospect that they're not working with yet, but they think they can help this person be more fearless about their finances, then they can propose the right portfolio and say, hey, you're invested. Say for me, an advisor would say, man, you might be invested at a risk 42. No wonder you feel a little FOMO about the markets and things going on out there. I can propose you a portfolio that takes on a bit more risk or you know, more often it's the reverse when somebody clocks in at a lower risk number, the advisor can say, wow, okay, you're invested like a 75, but your risk number is a 39. No wonder you're nervous all the time. No wonder you're fearful about your finances. I can propose a portfolio that's more in alignment with your risk number. And then they're off to the races. So that's the core of what the app does. You know, we've built out over the years, different ways to analyze those investments, have the advisor make better decisions about how to build portfolios, discover new funds, and then even trade and rebalance those portfolios to make sure that they stay in alignment with the client's risk number and other things. So these risk scores, are they an absolute or is this more of a bell curve to get everybody fall somewhere in the middle or most people, I should say, fall somewhere in the middle? Or is it truly like, no, this is just your individual tolerance for risk? It is, you know, everybody's different. The old school way of doing this, by the way, is stereotyping people based on their age and thinking that you act like your age does, right? So to your point about whether this is absolute, you know, they, the old way to do this is, ah, okay, well, you seem fairly young. So I guess you're quote unquote, moderately aggressive, whatever that means to you, that might mean something different to me than to my advisor, but they use those semantics. And so we've done a bunch of academic research and figured out, gosh, that's not even, you know, those stereotypes are wrong about half the time. So, you know, 51% of 20 to 29 year olds aren't quote unquote, aggressive investors. On the flip side, 52% of 70 to 79-year-olds aren't quote-unquote conservative. Everyone has a different tolerance for risk, and that might change a little bit over time. But boy, on the big picture, it stays relatively stable. I'm curious, just because I think this concept is fascinating, but does that on average change for people over time? Or if they're conservative, they tend to be conservative throughout their life? What changes over time is something called your risk capacity, your capacity to take on risk. 
So if I'm younger, I might be able to be able to take more risks and still make it to retirement if something disastrous happens. You might be at a place where it would be not in good fiduciary faith for an advisor to have a retiree in something way too risky, even if they have the stomach for it. And that's where an advisor would say, well, hey, maybe let's create this account or this sleeve over here that's our play money, and that'll be your risk 85. We're going to you know, invest in Tesla and, and gosh, GameStop and all those fun things, but know that your nest egg ought to be more protected from the volatility. So risk capacity does change over time because of your time horizon to retirement, right? And that's really important. But so sometimes the plan will change or the target will change, but gosh, risk tolerance, if it moves around, it's only a little bit and stays relatively stable. Interesting. So your end customer that you're trying to acquire, Riskalyze is trying to acquire, are the advisors themselves, not the investors? Correct. Yeah, we're strictly B2B, and our mission is accomplished through financial advisors today. So what you are extending to them is a platform that they can use to interact with their, their investors, their clients, right? Absolutely. So your pricing model to them, the subscription that you're effectively selling them is to license that to then be able to go out and acquire new business or better understand their existing customers at the end of the day. Yeah. And honestly, the ROI case for that, we're pretty fortunate in that because we talked about how this can be used as a prospect tool, right? Advisors will put a website on your button. What's your risk number? It's a very personal kind of call to action for them. They meet new people and get more information and get to help more folks. And boy, when that has such a tangible ROI, you know, I just had an advisor reach out to me. I saw this this week and said, gosh, 10 days after onboarding, I enrolled my first client. And that's going to cover the cost of using the platform forever, just because of the economics of it. If you bring on the right client, the ROI case is, is pretty easy. So then does it tend to be individual advisors or advisory firms that are working with you guys or a little bit of both? A little bit of all of it. You know, we're actually pretty unique in that we were sort of built from the bottoms up in the industry where it's individual independent advisors raising their hand and saying, hey, I want a better way to engage with risk with their clients. And then since then, we've struck up relationships with larger broker dealers and large registered investment advisory firms that you recognize their logos and things, right? Do some top-down software there. But it's a little bit of all of it, just given the complexity of the industry is there's a lot of bottoms up financial advisor, even if associated to broker dealer makes their own technology decisions. And in other contexts, that's a way different thing. So our TAM is a little complicated given that financial services is complicated. But because of that, we serve folks enterprise, medium businesses, individual advisors all across the board. Well, then talk to us a little bit about your pricing strategy, the different you know plans that you offer. And, and if you can go into some of the theory, I guess, behind those approaches. So one of the things that's interesting, so you know, our pricing plans is our core two offerings are Riskalyze Select and Riskalyze Elite. Riskalyze Select is a $250 month subscription, but on an annual contract and Riskalyze Elite jumps you up to Our strategy has been to roll out new value into new plans and has not to this day been to go back and raise prices on current customers. So the way that we do that, it's kind of tricky these days, especially in software, given what the markets are and given what inflation is and do you continue to add value and have the pricing strategy 
in place that matches when you've got a subscription and customers who are used to paying you a certain amount, right? And these days with inflation, if we were a company that made cereal, price of a box of cereal can change day to day. And with software, gosh, it's a relationship and a recurring relationship. And so when we think about pricing, we think about right-sizing price to value. When we roll out, you know, Riskalyze Select and Riskalyze Elite are only a couple of years old. And, you know, we have poured since 2013, you know, 50 something million dollars into R&D. And so those enhancements that we make package into new plans and say, hey, we're, we're not going to kick you off the old plan right now, but here's a new plan and all the reasons that you're going to find value into this new plan and get the users to upgrade along that path. What have you seen the return there or the, I should say, uptake there on existing customers sitting in a cheaper plan, getting them to come up to these newer features and more expensive plans? Well, boy, that's worked really well based on a couple of factors. One, you know, like we said, it's the ROI is pretty cut and dry. And so it's, it's not a leap to make conclusions about what you're getting back from a tool that helps you with your prospecting. So people love to invest in value that they get back. And when we add things into new plans that help them grow their businesses better, that's been a good conversation to have. So we've had a lot of adoption of new plans and particularly the Riskalyze Elite plan. Our premium to base ratio is through the roof. And right now, over 70% of new customers who come on board come aboard at the elite tier and not the select tier, which has been really telling for us. How did you decide on these two tiers and what are some of the key differentiators in those two products? The differentiators mainly, Riskalyze Elite right now is packed with a lot of investment analytics and research tools that take quite a bit more in terms of R&D investment to build and do. And so what we wanted to do is make sure we're aligned with, you know, we're not putting a, a gimmick into a higher tier and trying to do a price grab for that. We are actually pricing things to what it takes to build and support it. With Riskalyze Elite, you know, you're not just looking at a simple risk alignment equation that is comparing risk tolerance with portfolio risk, but you're going into what we call detailed portfolio stats, which is where an advisor will quote unquote geek out and oftentimes in their own office, right? This is not meeting with clients. There's a lot of that more back office technology where an advisor can help actually make better decisions about the portfolios they're proposing to their clients. And so a lot of that the data that we have to buy for that and the research and development that goes into getting that stuff right is what sort of justifies that being in the higher tier. Well, when it comes to product development, you're the perfect guy to ask about this. I'm sure there are, you know, you're just talking about data that you have to go out and buy and acquire and integrate with. How have you guys made decisions along the way to say, well, this is something that we can more build on our own versus the kind of things where you, you thought, no, we can go get this third-party tool or platform or whatever and kind of bolt it onto ours, maybe white label it, whatever. How have you guys made those decisions along the way? You know, for us, it comes down to the user experience. And I think where we're really good and particularly good is designing apps that advisors really like to use, apps that are easy. It's probably not too surprising that your average back office Wall Street technology is not the easiest to use. And so the fact that we've been able to build something into a unique user experience is something we want to invest in and continue to do on our own. Whereas when it comes to things like data, data is a bit more commoditized and you know we can pay for the data that pipes in as the input. Boy, the output, when we're going to display something on the screen to the advisor, we care about it because it's not just the advisor. The advisor is going to turn 
their monitor around and show their client. And, you know, the advisor wants to look good in front of those clients and professional. And so when it comes to user experience, especially where advisor meets client, we're going to invest in that on our own. Makes sense. Thinking about the things that present you as a product and differentiate you from anything else in the market or, you know, as a unique feature from the kind of things that you can kind of commoditize in the background. So does that mean products that are offered more as like an API service are going to be more attractive to you than things that require some sort of front end integration? Yeah, you know, a lot of our our integration world right now is that there's a lot of wealth management technology where bringing risk into the equation makes a lot of sense, even though we aren't in that particular space. Financial planning, as an example, there's comprehensive financial planning software. We do not say Riskalyze is comprehensive financial planning. But boy, risk can be part of that conversation. And so from a partnership perspective, we've built out our, our APIs and partners in say financial planning have built out their APIs so that we can send that data back and forth. In terms of a like API as a service or a business, that's something that we do a little bit of. We expect to do more of that in the future from in terms of us having API as a service product officially on the shelf for those who would then turn around and say, resell our data. And then from a purchasing perspective, yeah, we, we absolutely purchase data coming in through an API to, as an input so that we can do our calculation and produce the output. Go back into your previous role in marketing, what channels are working for you guys to acquire new customers? Obviously, it's a fairly niche product. There's a very specific audience that you're trying to get the message out to. So how do you guys do that? And what are you finding to be effective these days? Yeah, boy, our, our market is pretty unique in that not only is it a limited specific vertical, but it's a known vertical, given that the way that regulators have teed this up, boy, financial advisors have to publish their information, including contact information and things. And so you have database providers who can pipe in the entirety of the United States financial advisor database, hundreds of thousands of them into CRM. We know who they are. That puts the onus on us, though, to make sure that we are engaging people from a a sophisticated brand perspective, not just hammering folks with out-of-the-blue cold calls and trying to spam their email inboxes just because we have the our market organized into contacts and accounts and salesforce doesn't mean that we don't want to have a sophisticated multi-level in the funnel approach to striking genuine relationships with these advisors we used to lean in really heavily on trade shows right and then we all know what happened in the last couple of years there and have sort of shifted into a lot of things digital and there's been a lot of things that we've learned are, are working really well there and have spun up more of an account-based marketing mindset in terms of going after those key accounts that we want to do a personalized approach with. Yeah, makes sense. I'm curious when, so when in my mind that trade shows had to be like the perfect channel you know, for you guys, because there's obviously some very focused trade shows around this industry. How did you pivot through the pandemic? You know, freed up a lot of budget, I'll tell you that much. So we had the opportunity to try things, but then again, so did everybody, right? And so... One of the things we find, especially in our space in a B2B vertical, you know, we're starting to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to account-based marketing. And you know, we leverage HubSpot for our marketing automation. But I think marketing automation and content marketing and those types of strategies, I see as fishing with a net. And you put what you can get out there, you bring in and you, know, you see how many fish that you can get on scale. And account-based marketing feels a lot like fishing with a spear. Instead of going, you know, hey, what do all the financial advisors in America need 
from a social media perspective or a display ads perspective or SEM or email, direct mail, you name it, you then go, well, okay, if we've got this small set of key accounts, what does this account here need from a social media perspective? What do they need from a display ad perspective? What do they need from a direct mail perspective? And when you start asking questions that way, you start really engaging folks in a way that's not sort of watered down broad, but fishing with a spear when you treat each key account as if it's a market of one. And that's how you really start getting people's attention. It's a very interesting approach. And I like that analogy a lot. But I assume also you approach it one at a time, but you're learning things along the way that you can use and kind of create the engine then to continue to do that one-on-one marketing, but do it in a more efficient way. You know, that is the tension of account-based marketing, right? Is figuring out how to scale the unscalable. You know, the things that grab folks' attention are the things that are most personalized. The things that are most personalized are the things you can't necessarily do for everyone all of the time. We use a tool called DemandBase to help us in terms of scalability of ABM, at least from a display ad perspective, you know, where because of associated IP addresses and things, you can be pretty specific with your targeting of display ads. And so instead of us buying a display ad in the Wall Street Journal for everyone to see, these account-based marketing providers will buy that ad space and then conditionally serve up to certain IPs and profiles those ads. So we don't have to be stuck to only advertising in smaller, more niche trade publications, nor do we have to foot the bill for buying an ad on the Wall Street Journal site or Fox Business or, or you name it. We get to advertise to our market, but in those contexts, and that just feels like a bigger deal to them. And so there are ways to personalize those ads and make it about them and scale. But then, you know, when it comes down to it, there are a lot of things, direct mail and things that it really does take intentionality for you to go, yeah, I, I know this key account. I know what they need to hear from us. I actually care about each stakeholder there. And some of those things are, you will never perfectly scale it to infinity. And that's okay. Do you feel like this multi-channel approach that you guys are taking to hit them where they need to be hit from the right angle? Do you feel like though, you really can't do one without the other? Because even in a trade publication, you might not get a lead out of that, but that's brand and name repetition, right? That then when they get maybe a targeted display ad or something like that, they're going, oh yeah, I have heard of these guys before. So do you feel like that's important? Yeah, absolutely. The important thing is measuring what's important to measure at each stage of those, right? Sometimes we'll launch a display ad campaign in a publication or something, you know, and, and you'll have sales folks go, okay, so when do the leads show up, right? And there are different tactics for different things. And if you're measuring the right, you know, say you're measuring traffic to site based on some of those things. I don't know about you. I can't remember the last time I clicked on a display ad. What's important is getting your message out there, getting your brand recognized and known. And what I have done is if I see something interesting in a display ad, I'm more likely to Google that thing. A lot of the times you get inbound traffic that you can't tie directly to I clicked through on this method of advertising and have this perfectly reportable linear path. But those sort of top of funnel advertising functions, as I call them, should do things like drive traffic to site, which then drive certain conversions and engagements from there. Then you've got, use the term tofu, mofu, and bofu, top of funnel, middle of funnel, and bottom of funnel, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, tofu, I'm not talking about the nasty meat. I'm talking, you know, those sorts of things that have specific measurable, we want to do impressions, we want to drive traffic, we want to do these types of things, middle of funnel. Our goals here is to drive 
engagement in our content marketing assets, right? Like who's reading this white paper? Who is looking at this case study? Who's really engaged on our pricing page? Those sorts of middle of funnel things are different from a bottom of funnel, which is, hey, let's get some folks to raise their hand. If we really have struck up the right relationship here, we can ask, hey, would you like to book a demo with uh, somebody who can show you our technology? And you can ask those more direct things once you get them at the right stage of the funnel, right? I would never walk into you know, a bar in my, my single guy days and say, hi, I would like to have children someday. You look like a great candidate for that. Would you like to talk, right? You, you strike up a relationship and engage people at the appropriate level. And so that's where your bottom of funnel campaigns come in only once you've nurtured folks through the rest of it. Does that mean, and I probably know the answer to this question, that you guys don't get too hung up on attribution, like where, what channel really drove the lead in? The dichotomy of attribution is that, you know, you're a business and you need that. You need predictable that can pay off. So attribution is really tough in some ways, and it's really easy in some ways. Most of our efforts we like to think can manifest itself in a measurable marketing qualified lead that kicks off a specific sales cycle in our system. And you can say, hey, how much of our production came from marketing qualified leads? And that's a really easy line to draw, right? More difficult line to draw is what are all the bets that we're making to produce these marketing qualified leads? And you can sort of you can draw lines there when you look and report on things a bit more ad hoc, right? And go, boy, we know that this campaign was correlated with a spike in traffic to site. And we know that traffic to site converts into leads like this. And so we can make some assumptions to go, our bets are paying off. But boy, yeah, there's a world of really clean reporting where you're going, how many new, for us, financial advisors did we bring into the movement? And did they come from a certain lead source type? That's great. But yeah, tough to say sometimes exactly how much revenue is driven by doing something that's more top of funnel. But those ad hoc reports should make you smarter about what you think are driving the things that are measurable. Makes all kinds of sense. And I do think for any listeners, you need to throw the lens of your product on top of this, like its price point and its longevity. Because, you know, at three or $4,000 a year, what you guys are asking, you're right. No one's going to take one ad one time, go to the site and be like, yep, sign me up right now. Or at least that's extremely unlikely. Like you're going to take them through a process and nurture them eventually into a sale. But, you know, for those who are selling a $4.99 a month product through Instagram or something like that, you're going to get the impulse sales. You do have to really tailor that to who your end customer is and the product itself, right? Exactly. And I think that the temptation is to make it when, yeah, you're not selling something for five bucks on Instagram, but you have a subscription relationship with somebody who needs to use your software and be successful. The temptation is to make it all about you right up top, right? And say, hey, our software is the best. It's got the shiniest buttons. You're going to love it. Please come hear all about our software. Whereas, you know, this is something that HubSpotters, you know, that whole inbound movement does really well is that it inspires marketers to make things about their audience and deliver actual, helpful, useful content. We're not as likely to, you know, produce something that says 10 reasons you need to use Riskalyze. We might say, here are five reasons clients fire their financial advisor based on a survey. And then we can engage people with content that meets them where they're at. And then once they're engaging with that content, and you've struck up some sort of a relationship, even if a distant and digital relationship, then you can introduce stuff about you. And that's honestly is my favorite stuff. I'm a product marketing guy at heart. That's why, you know, I've been 
in marketing and then now leading up product and leading up product from a product marketing lens. You know, where our product meets market, what is really enticing folks about the value that we deliver. The stuff that gets me really fired up is product launch day, right? And, you know, or an event where you can get thousands of people tuned in. And when you can do a really well-produced product launch, that's my favorite stuff. And so for the last several years, I've had to avoid the temptation to make all marketing product marketing and let people go down a little bit more of a longer and more sophisticated brand journey with us until you make it about the product marketing. But boy, when you're passionate about your product, you want every piece of marketing to be product marketing. I've definitely struggled with that because that's my jam. It's my favorite. It's your baby, right? You love it. You want to get it out in the world and see what it does. Absolutely. Well, um, alluded to this at the beginning of the show, but with today being April Fool's, you were telling me about an interesting little thing you guys were doing uh, related to Wordle. So what was that? Yeah, I know some people think that, you know, uh, your corporate or business April Fool's shenanigans have jumped the shark and too many people doing things for frivolous reasons. For us, we just have so much fun with it. We can't help ourselves. And so, you know, we'll build a fun little app or something on the side. We actually had a developer build this in a weekend. Nick, do you wordle, by the way? I don't know if you're a wordler. Well, I should say my family does. And when they get stuck, they hand me the phone and they try, I try to get the last <laughs> word for them. There you go. Okay. So you are the wordle cheat code for everyone else in your family. I guess so. I've been hooked on the wordle, man, just like it feels like everybody else has. And you're right, we're recording this on April 1. And so, boy, our, our big product release today is something called Riskle. You can go to riskle.io, R-A-S-K-L-E dot I-O, and try this out. It's just like Wordle, same rules, except you're guessing a stock ticker. And so it's a four-character stock ticker. I think our database is kind of recognizable four-character stock tickers in the S&P 500. And so you can go through and see if you can guess today's Riskle. And if you're stuck and need a hint, our sort of tie to our value is that we just launched a feature called Discovery, which is our stock screener advisor. You can go go in and really quickly look up different kinds of stocks and ETFs and mutual funds based on certain parameters and screen for them as they're building out portfolios. And Riskle, I will say, is harder than Wordle, which is why about halfway through, we might pop up and give you a hint about maybe which equity sector or something that you can go filter through and it sure helps to have Riskalyze and use our new discovery feature to help you find the answer to this. So it's a nice way to tie those two together. That's the tie-in, but people are having a lot of fun on, on social media and stuff about that today. Well, once you guys have acquired these customers, you mentioned before talking about value-based pricing and continuously delivering value throughout the relationship with the customer, but talk maybe a little bit about the types of things you're doing to keep the investors that you've got to keep them using the platform and keep them engaged and really to try to reduce churn as much as you can. Gosh, that's sort of everyone's job, right? That is a product function and a marketing function as much as it's a customer success function. For us, customer success, we like to, you know, we call it advisor success. And we just, we think that we've got the best customer care team in the industry, given that we've got a core set of values that inform how we delight our customers. And so the customer care and advisor success as a whole needs support from both product and marketing. We have a customer marketing function that I think we have actually spun up maybe a little earlier than one would benchmark as a company to have a dedicated customer marketing function live in, in marketing. By customer marketing, I don't, by the way, mean marketing upsells and, and things. This is not production driver as it is a growth driver via retention. We've got dedicated resources trying to figure out 
which sort of content campaigns can just simply get folks engaged. They're not like incentivized or goals based on marketing qualified leads, but on a customer health score and engagement in the app. We run tests all the time on which kind of things, whether it be invites to our events. You know, we do boot camp trainings across the country and we do digital boot camp trainings. And we do those at just the right time. If you can say, hey, somebody's got a contract renewal coming up in three months, that's the perfect time to reach out to those who may not be as engaged and say, hey, most of the advisors sort of in your cohort are just experiencing a tremendous amount of value here. If for some reason you're not, we want to help you. And so the customer marketing team will reach out and make sure we've got those who aren't as engaged attending trainings and engaging with us from a content perspective so that they can get inspired to go, wow, I want the results that these other Riskalyze customers are having. Like one of the first things you said in the answer to that question there, which was, wow, that's really the job of everyone within the organization. And while that's probably second nature to you, I don't, you know, that's not universally true, you know, in every subscription-based organization. A lot of times there is a retention department whose only job is to, you know, try to hold on to customers, which end up being very tactical tactics to offer them a free month or just things like that, instead of looking at it holistically as maybe there's a problem with our product. Maybe it's the problem with the way we're messaging or training or onboarding customers. But you're right. I mean, it has to be the focus of everyone in the organization, not just some customer service agent. 100%. To be clear, we have a department that is dedicated and incentivized on retention, right? Our advisor success department. But if it was only them, then they would be forced to be on defense, right? If the product team isn't thinking about the customer, if the marketing team isn't thinking about the customer, if the entire organization doesn't feel like this is an us thing to make sure that our customers are getting a value and are raving fans, then you're stuck with uh, good luck defense. You've, we've got one department to try to make up for all of that. And that's just not the way we think about it. That's not. And, and being on the defensive from the very beginning puts the customer on the maybe on the offensive of they're just trying to, you know, to smooth over this situation. But if you can't address the root problem, like I'm not getting value out of it anymore, or whatever the case might be, you're, you might retain them for another month or two, but they're going to go anyway, right? 100%. Well, Justin, this has been a fun conversation. I don't want to take all of your Friday, April 1st here. But for anyone who is listening, who wants to learn more about Riskalyze, or maybe ask a follow up question to something we talked about today, where can they go? Riskalyze.com. And if you'd like, I spun up just as a research project, I spun up risknumber.com, which is more relevant for somebody who's not a registered investment advisor to go and find the risk number. So you can do that if you want. That was just a consumer research project where we would then, if anyone raised their hand and said, hey, I'd like a financial advisor, another piece of customer delight is that we would say we would make that introduction. We're not advertising on that right now, but that site still exists. And so risknumber.com, if you're just curious and want to find your risk number, and then as far as next steps beyond that, gosh, if you want to know the risk number of your portfolio, I guess start asking around with advisors. There's a ton of them out there who can give you the risk number. And so that's something that I'd encourage you to ask an advisor about to see the rest of the platform. Well, I got to say, after this conversation, I am very curious what my uh, risk number is. So I might head out to that site just to check it out. Very cool, Nick. If you want a good advisor on the other side of that, give me a call. Will do. Well, Justin, again, really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate all that you shared today and, and about the Riskalyze journey and uh, best of luck to you guys. 
Thank you, Nick. I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.